Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I am your host, Anna Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we speak to top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we talk to Pamela Ronald, professor of plant pathology at the University of California, Davis. Professor Ronald is also the director of grass genetics at the Joint Bioenergy Institute. Her laboratory has engineered rice for resistance to disease and tolerance to flooding, which seriously threaten rice crops in Asia and Africa. She led the isolation of the rice XA21 immune receptor, the bacterial AX21 quorum sensing factor, and the rice sub-1A submergence tolerance transcription factor. In 1996, she established the Genetic Resources Recognition Fund, a mechanism to recognize intellectual property contributions from less developed countries. She and her colleagues were the recipients of the USDA 2008 National Research Initiative Discovery Award for their work on rice submergence tolerance. Professor Ronald is an elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. She is the co-author with her husband, Rola Demchak, an organic farmer, of Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming, Genetic, and the Future of Food. Bill Gates calls the book a fantastic piece of work. And in 2011, Fast Magazine named her one of the world's 100 most creative people. Professor Ronald, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. So you're the author of one article that uh, is appearing in the 2012 Annual Review of Plant Biology titled Plant Innate Immunity, Perception of Conserved Microbial Signatures. So let's talk a little bit about innate immunity. What is innate immunity, which organisms have it, and how does it differ from adaptive immunity? Uh, well, plants and animals both have these innate immune systems, and it's it's actually been a very exciting time during the last 15 years for several reasons. Um, so one, even 20 years ago, we didn't know how plants resisted disease, and yet these disease resistance genes are very important to agriculture uh, because breeders use these genes so that the plants have resistance and they don't have to spray insecticides um, or other types of pesticides on the plants. And even though we've been using these genes for years, no one knew really what they were. And, and unbeknownst to plant biologists, at least most plant biologists, animal biologists were also trying to look for an unusual immune system. And it, it's been known for many years that animals have an adaptive immune system which consists of highly specialized cells that can prevent pathogenic growth. And this type of immunity is, is considered adaptive because um, you can use genetic recombination of different receptors to generate a lot of different recognition specificities. So this most people are familiar with antibodies, and that is uh, really a key point of the adaptive immune system. Well, it turns out that animals have a second immune system called the innate immune system, and that system is very, very similar to plant immunity. Right, and so um, in 1995, you and your team you identified uh, the, um, well, XA21, which is the receptor of microbial signatures in rice. So um, what are they, and what is their role in plant immunity? So these receptors uh, can be cell surface receptors or sometimes intracellular receptors. And the class that I work on is really quite interesting because 
the it recognizes a small molecule that's highly conserved in the microbe. And the reason this is important is that the plant then can recognize not only a specific race of the microbe, but all members of that class. And it's a similar situation in in animals where uh, these immune receptors also recognize highly conserved microbial determinants. Right. And then late, late last year, you um, you made this other discovery about AX21, which is the corn sensing factor. Um, how, what is the mechanism there? How does, it, how does it work? So this has been a very interesting story because we knew from work of breeders over 30 years that XA21 had a, a very broad, conferred a very broad spectrum resistance. And uh, we hypothesized, uh, you know, nearly 20 years now that the rice pathogen Xanthomonas must carry a, a conserved microbial molecule. And so we spent a lot of time trying to isolate that, and we were able to um, do a little bit of sleuthing by looking at a lot of different types of uh, bacterial systems and carried out some biochemical and genetic approaches. And we identified a small protein, which uh, didn't fall into any previously characterized class. It was unknown what it, what, how it functioned. But we were able to figure out that it actually functions in bacterial communication, uh, and that's called quorum sensing. The bacteria are sending this protein back and forth, and they can perceive um, that small protein. And at, at a certain density, the, the bacteria will trigger a, a completely new transcriptional program. And so we believe then that the plant has evolved to recognize this bacterial signaling factor. Current sensing is is, um, is is a mechanism of, like you say, communication between bacteria. It was um, better understood and, and um, studied very, very um, deeply by um, Bonnie Bassler, who happens to be the editor of our annual review of genetics. And um, so she, she didn't exactly discover this, but what you have shown is that this happens in plants. Other researchers have shown that this also happens in animals and humans. So what does this mean, you know, in, in the larger scale in terms of um, our ability to fight diseases, in terms of, you know, antibiotics for, for humans or, or animals and, uh, you know, for plants? What, what are the techniques there that could, that could help? So Bonnie um, has been characterizing for many years this very interesting small molecule called the AHL chlorine sensing factor, and uh, it was thought for many years that gram-negative bacteria carry only this type or related types of quorum sensing factors. And so what what we discovered is quorum sensing in gram-negative bacteria. So it's not plants. It's not quorum sensing in plants. It's the uh, quorum sensing of the bacterial pathogen that infects the plant. So the bacteria are actually sending a molecule back and forth, and when the plant perceives that bacterial factor, the plant then um, launches a robust immune response. So the bacterial molecule that we identified is a completely different class than the one that Bonnie Bassler discovers. And in fact, it's, um, it, it is a small protein with a, um, 
processed leader, and it turns out it's present also in pathogens of grape and also pathogens of human. So it's a it's a brand new type of quorum sensing factor that had not previously been identified in gram negative bacteria. Terminology is probably a little confusing because the plant receptor in rice is called XA21, and the bacterial quorum sensing factor is called AX21. And it's the bacterial factor that's uh, conserved in um, both plant pathogens and human pathogens. And um, so that's the small protein. And then on the receptor side, uh, the protein is called XA21. So it, it's it's hugely significant, um, both for plants and, and, and for animals. I mean, it, it seems that cures could be found more easily, um, ways to control immune systems um, or reactions, at least, in, in plants and, and, and animals could be could be found. And uh, I just want to kind of go back a little bit to, to your book, Tomorrow's Stable, which you wrote with um, your husband. Um, what exactly do you say in this book? Because he's an organic farmer. You engineer genes. You, you move them around. So what do you have in common? So we have a lot in common. You know, I think we got into our, our areas of uh, life's work because we're both interested in sustainable agriculture. And really the goal of what both we do is an ecologically-based agricultural system. And and. Sustainable agriculture, it's very critical that uh, we we reduce the amount of harmful inputs into the environment, that we produce enough food that can reach the poor and malnourished. Uh, we have critical issues with um, land and water. We have um, reduced availability of both these important resources resources for for growing food. So these are the kinds of issues we've both been interested in for a very, very long time. And you seem to have approaches that um, aren't compatible at all. I mean, at least in, you know, in the eyes of, um, of somebody who would be less informed about this kind of stuff. So how exactly do you combine um, the techniques of organic agriculture or sustainable agriculture with, with um, genetic engineering? Well, or, organic agriculture is a, a important uh, part of agriculture. It's it's um, a collection of pract- farming practices, and they really seek to reduce the amount of inputs used uh, in the environment. But it's not necessarily considered sustainable agriculture because sustainable agriculture looks much more broadly to look at the impact of land and water and insecticide and productivity and um, the farmers and, and making food available to um, broad broad groups of people. But organic farmers um, have always relied on improved seed. So organic farmers uh, use uh, genetically improved seed and hybrid seed. So farmers are all very familiar with the importance of, of improved seed. And so I work in the on the seed side of things. Now I think the uh, the polarization has really occurred because the organic farmers are not allowed to use genetically engineered seed. So they 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 don't have access to genetically engineered seed. But the goal of sustainable agriculture is is critical. I think to organic farmers, but they just have one less tool available to them. Right. And, you know, you argue that humans have been moving genes around for a long time now um, through conventional breeding um, 
And so what are some of the techniques that you have in mind when you say that? Like, what have humans been, been doing um, that could qualify as moving plant genes around? Well, there's uh, genetic engineering is very different from conventional breeding because genetic engineering moves one or two very well-characterized genes into a particular variety favored by farmers, where conventional breeding um, uses, uh, actually includes a whole diverse uh, group of techniques that changes usually many genes at once. And, of course, the other major change between conventional approaches and genetic engineering is that with genetic engineering, um, a gene from any species can be moved um, into uh, a variety, whereas with conventional breeding, that gene transfer is between closely related, generally closely related species. So those are the major differences. Um, but, of course, everything we eat uh, has been genetically improved in some way, uh, whether it's through conventional breeding or genetic engineering. So... Um, Everything you eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, has been developed through uh, modern uh, genetic approaches. And um, this started about 10,000 years ago through, at that time, just primitive seed selection, uh, collecting seeds, and it's advanced over the years to a number of, of different techniques. And one of the techniques that um, is being increasingly used today is genetic engineering. Right, um, and genetic engineering tends to scare a lot of people. Um, a big worry is is safety. Another one is, um, you know, the coevolution of species of organisms, plants and insects. Um, how do you respond to that? How do you how do you convince people who who who, um, who present those arguments to you? I think it's important to look at the um, the science and. Uh, we do know from many, many studies all over the world that uh, genetically engineered crops that are on the in the environment now are, are safe to eat and safe for the environment. It doesn't mean that every new plant variety, whether it's conventionally grown or genetically engineered, will be um, as, as safe and beneficial as the crops currently in the environment, but at least people don't need to worry that there is um, something toxic out there right now. And I, I always urge people to look at the National Academy of Sciences and actually any uh, academy of science in any country, so Mexico, France, the U.K., um, the United States, all these countries' leading scientific agencies have concluded that the genetically engineered crops on the market are safe to eat and safe for the environment. And so that is something that, you know, it, it's um, something that I think scientists um, understand the concept of um, scientific consensus, but it's a little bit more difficult, I think, for the general public who aren't familiar with the scientific method and testing and um you know, most people in the public don't even know who the National Academy of Sciences is. So they, um, it's harder, I think, for them to to, um, to be reassured right. by the science. But the National Academy of Sciences, they put it in a really very nice way. You know, of course, anything we eat has poses some risk. Uh, but their, the way they phrase it is that the risks are similar whether the genes are introduced through conventional breeding or through genetic engineering. So the process, processes present similar risk, and it's really the end product that, that's 
that matters, right? So through conventional breeding, you can develop, and we have developed, highly toxic plants. Um, so, for example, there's a celery that was developed through conventional breeding that when farm met workers harvest it, they get they get a rash. Um, so we've seen those unintended consequences through conventional breeding, and at least to date, there there has not been those types of negative consequences with genetic engineering. But certainly, um, there is not such a thing as, as no risk. There's always some risk, and it's the risk and benefits that really need to be looked at very carefully, I think. Right. And can you think of um, any example of integrated farming that, that works really well, that has into account um, the, um, you know, the insects that, that, that live and, and, and benefit the plants? Um, do, you, do you have anything in mind that, that you, know, you could use as a, as, a, as a shining example of how this could work? Yeah, well, there's many examples now. I, you know, one of my favorite examples is um, genetically engineered papaya, which was developed through public funding, and um, it, it confers resistance to a really devastating viral disease. And, and today, so a local Hawaiian developed this uh, genetically engineered papaya that's immune to the virus, and it's really still the only way to uh, combat this disease. And so I like to think of it as an appropriate technology. So genetic engineering is not always going to be the most appropriate technology. There may, may be farming methods or other types of methods to develop uh, to combat a particular problem. But in this particular case, it really is a fantastically appropriate technology. And these papayas yield about 20-fold more than um, conventional or organic papayas um, in the area. And so almost everything, all the papayas that we get in California are genetically engineered, or something like 90% of them. So that's a, a nice story, I think. And so the way the genetic engineering, it's mechanistically different but conceptually similar to a polio vaccine or small smallpox vaccine, um, and those types of vaccines have led to virtual eradication of diseases. So great. So yeah. So so just kind of a thoughtful approach to um, to farming to breeding. Um, this is what you're advocating. Um, I think that is certainly what what we need to look at, and, and genetically engineered crops. Uh, need to be embedded in an integrated farming approach. If you just rely on the seed alone to solve all your problems, you're not going to get very far because we've known through 100 years of, of agriculture that uh, if you use one tool, you're likely going to uh, develop pathogens that can overcome that tool. And so that's why um, the genetically engineered cotton in Arizona has been such a success because you've had farmers and breeders and entomologists all working together to uh, really have an integrated program down there. And they've seen reductions in about 50% of the insecticides used on cotton in Arizona because of these integrated approaches combining genetically engineered crops with other types of um, farming methods. Pamela Ronald, thank you so much for participating in this interview with us. It's been a pleasure thank talking you very much. to you. A real pleasure. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. 
for 80 years, annual reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening.